0: Good morning, Scott Colborn, with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's that weird radio show that a lot of you listen to every Saturday morning, and we are so grateful for you being out there and for listening. Thanks again to all those folks that have donated to the recent KZUM fundraiser. Um, when it happens in um, February, I never know whether to call it the winter fundraiser The first fundraiser, we can't really call it the spring fundraiser. We're really jumping the gun. So it's the 42nd birthday bash. How about that? Celebrating 42 years of KZUM Radio. Um, We've done 35, but KZUM has done 42, Jim. Yeah, that's a long time. That's a long time. Boy, what what a great run we've had so far. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for all the donations and you can still do that um, securely online at kzm.org if you'd like to. So um, I'm noticing I'm getting a little bit of crackle in my, my headphones here. I'm not sure if that's uh, the on-air signal or just my headphones.
1: I think it's just your headphones. I'm not hearing it.
0: Okay, good. Um, Jim, we've got a special show today. We're going to start off with our normal opening segment, Pet Talk, with Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. Mm-hmm. Then we've got Preston Dennett. He's coming up next. And then we've got a double header. We've got, uh, from Italy, Irvin Laszlo, the author of many books, including this brand new one, Reconnecting to the Source. Yeah. And then the second half is Cynthia Sue Larson. And she's been a guest twice on the program, but because we've done this for 35 years, it's been, quote-unquote, a while since we've talked to her, and I can't wait to get her back on the show. So we've got a lot of, lot of good, good stuff coming up. That's a professional radio term, good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, I'd like to have you all take a moment and join me in singing happy birthday for Carrie Samrod. She's our general manager. So if some kids out there are listening, I need to have some of you kids singing really low. And some of you kids singing really high, okay? And if you don't sing, then you can just mouth the words. But it's all about the synergism of wishing our general manager, Carrie, a happy birthday. And um, so here we go. Ready? Jim, you're going to lead us off, okay? No, okay, I will. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. Happy birthday to you. And we do mean you. Hey, kids, how was that? Was See, that I'm, a I'm so
1: glad I didn't sing because I could not have topped that.
0: Was that a keeper? I think that was fun. Carrie Simrod. <laughs> happy, <laughs> happy birthday, Carrie. And uh, she doesn't look a day over like 25.
1: Yeah, she doesn't. It's amazing.
0: So she, uh, it's she's got... an unexplained got, phenomena. She's got brain. She's got good looks. She's got poise. And she puts up with all of us. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the biggie right there. <laughs>
0: Okay, that was fun. I like doing stuff like that. Did you kids out there, young and old, did you have fun? Did you find yourself singing along no matter where you were in the car? Maybe you were just in a store someplace, and they had this on the uh, the intercom or something. I hoped you sang along. And if you didn't that first time, you can still do it again <laughs> and again and really bug people around you a lot, so... Okay, let's go to um, a person who always raises the intelligence quotient of the show by at least two or three degrees. I speak of none other than Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. Hi, Charlene. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Nice singing voice.
0: Thank you. Did you find yourself kind of humming along, too?
2: I did. I
0: I can see that. Isn't that fun?
1: Were the dogs howling? Uh,
2: (laughs) There might have been a few in the background.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So how's tricks down there?
2: Uh, we're gearing up already for our Tails and Trails Pet wow, Walk. Oh, and um, Trails. We do have information on how to register on our website. It will be coming up on May 16th at the Fallbrook Town Center, uh, so you can learn more there. Um, we're always looking forward to seeing more people attend to help us meet our fundraising goal.
1: Always a fun event. I'm sure you'll have a great turnout.
2: I think so. It should be uh, hopefully a beautiful day like today.
0: So, uh, we've got a lot of publicity about this coronavirus. Uh, do you pets need to also be concerned about that?
2: We did actually post some information about that on our website. Um, so, uh, while it is contagious or it, to be uh, contagious from humans uh, being spread primarily from person to person. Um, People with confirmed um, COVID-19 should avoid contact with other people as well as pets. And we do have a document with really accurate, up-to-date information that you can read um, about companion animals and the new coronavirus.
0: Mm. Uh, This is Sherlene with the Capital Humane Society. And we talk about dogs and cats for adoption. And let's pick some great cats to talk to the folks about, Charlene. Who's up first? We
2: have some beauties all looking for wonderful families, and we're going to start with Maisie.
0: Maisie, Maisie, Maisie. He's got
1: a singing thing going on today here.
2: Maisie is about eight years old, a spayed female, such a pretty picture. Mm -hmm. She's just a very gentle personality looking for a warm and wonderful home where she will be a treasured companion.
0: Beautiful cat with all those uh, markings, the ribbing. uh, I don't know what you call that, but I just I love that. And she's got such a regal look to her, too.
1: I would almost say she looks like a silver with black stripes, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, I think we we might have her down as a black and brown tabby, but I do see, you're right, as the gray and silver Mm -hmm. in her as well.
0: What a striking cat. Who's Maisie's buddy?
2: Next, we're going to talk about Marvin. And Marvin's pictured with uh, his... uh, little body snuggled up in a (laughs) shoebox. he's about two years old a shy cat looking for a nice quiet home he is also front declawed so he should be kept indoors only so he's nice and safe
0: is marvin a martian (laughs) we don't think so but he's a cool cat
1: you could get a cat sized helmet with the the scrub brush on top and you know they kind of look the same
0: and invite Jim over to it. install that on the cat and see what <laughs> happens. Oh, I'm a
1: cat whisperer. I have a way with cats.
0: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So CapitalHumaneSociety.org is where you go. You can click on these thumbnails, and there's more text that pops up. Bigger picture, we've talked so far about Maisie and Marvin, who is not a Martian. And then there's a third cat.
2: And that is Dominga. And she is two years old, a spayed female, a pretty cat, a, also a timid cat, would like to find a home that's nice and quiet and calm where she can feel at ease.
1: Kind of almost looks like a tuxedo cat from, from that age. Yeah. Can't, can't say for sure, but uh, black over white.
0: Interesting markings are on the nose. sort of like she's trying to do one of those Samantha Bewitch things with her nose.
3: And
0: and so yep, there's Dominga, Maisie, Marvin, and Dominga. Uh, what else can you say about these three great cats? Get down there and adopt one. That's right. Yeah. Hours open today and tomorrow, Charlene.
2: We are open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to
0: 5.30. Time for Dogs for Adoption. And who's coming up first for dogs?
2: We will talk about Sadie. She has a very pretty picture. She's about a year old, a German Shepherd Coon Hound mix, a sweet dog looking for a family that has time to provide her with plenty of exercise and some training. She's looking for a cat-free and children-free home, and uh, we have a phone number on our website. We do need you to call first to make an appointment to meet her.
0: Sadie is a good-looking lady, and boy, is she staring intently at the camera. Whatever that person's got, if it's a treat or a toy, Sadie is totally laser-focused. And yeah. when you click on her thumbnail, uh, more information is going to pop up. So take a look at Sadie at org, And who's up next?
2: Emmett and he is a coon hound about four years old a very charming dog so he he definitely has that uh, hound bark um, and hound howl so if you like vocal dogs then he might be the perfect dog for you Um, he is a lot of fun has a lot of energy and just a really really sweet personality
0: you ain't nothing but a hound dog lover yeah, you could love Emmett if you like hound dogs. Take a look at Emmett. I thought that, I've always thought that name is cool. Uh, Dennis Taylor, one of my best friends, his dad's name was Emmett. He was a cool guy. So, uh, Emmett, take a look at his picture. Maybe, maybe that will just do it. Sadie Emmett and their buddy is?
2: Khaleesi. And she is a Pitbull boxer mix, about four years old. Very intelligent. She wants to be the one and only canine, so she's looking for a dog-free home. But if you have time to give her the exercise and attention she deserves, we hope you'll come and ask for her today.
0: This is the first Khaleesi that we've ever had on the program. Sadie, Emmett, and Khaleesi, three great dogs. And what are hours open today and tomorrow?
2: We will be open today and tomorrow at our PyLock Pet Adoption Center from 11 to 530.
0: So you were with us last week. Um, we did our best to try to do an impromptu pet talk. Hopefully you haven't received too many complaints.
2: No, none at all. I think you guys did an awesome job, and we can't thank you enough for all you do to support our work and promote adoption of these beautiful animals.
0: Yes, it's it's our, uh, our pleasure and honor. Let's do it again next week. Perfect, I'll be there. Let's, let's, we've had a trial run of how many years now? Let's just make this a permanent thing.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> okay, Charlene, have a great rest of the weekend.
2: Thank you, you too.
0: Charlene and friends uh, at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And um, we always have fun, and hopefully you do too. Whenever we have a fundraiser, I always, repeat, always think about my late friend, former school teacher and founder of the Mickle Bush Spay Neuter Foundation, Dorothy Bush. Dorothy was a wonderful woman. She was a friend of mine, a well-read woman, very, very smart. Uh, She loved pets. And uh, so whenever we did the fundraisers, she would make it a point to call in during pet talk because she wanted to support the idea of people connecting with pets and that wonderful love and joy that happens. And uh, so, Dorothy, thank you very, very much. What happens when I can't reach the flashing button? I have to just go off mic. So, Jim, I'm going to hand the mic to you. You can't reach the flashing button?
1: Are, are your arms getting shorter or what? That must be some kind of. No, well, um, look.
0: I'm, I'm sitting. Be, I'm sitting behind the microphone right now, and my arm's extended. See, so I can't reach it.
1: Well, it's like eight inches away from the tips of your fingers. Come on. Well,
0: yeah, that's why you're you're the <laughs> host. You you pick that slack up here, and you do that. Yeah, usually pretty good. So
1: so yeah, you're saying you're a slacker.
0: Uh, how's the coffee, by the way? Coffee's excellent, thank you. This is some French roast.
1: So very very good coffee.
0: Pearly français. Shall we toast to Preston? That's toast to Preston. Hey, Preston, we're giving you a coffee toast here.
1: Awesome. I love French roast. Oh, great. This is good stuff,
0: too. Okay. Hey, my, my friend, top of the morning to you. How are you?
4: Doing well. Yeah, it's just weekend. I'm happy.
0: Um, an accountant by day, a sleuth of UFOs and all things mysterious at night and on the weekends. And how's that, how's that going for you? Are you enjoying that?
4: Hey, I can't complain. I do anyway sometimes, but yeah, I'm having a blast.
0: <laughs> it seems to me that it would be so interesting uh, for all the people listening to just imagine themselves in your seat, that you receive all these stories and personal accounts from people. And it's gotta be just fascinating you're able to see similarities, differences, patterns. Um, what What's crossed your desk in the last 30 days that's really piqued your interest, Preston?
4: Yeah, yeah, it's a great life. I sometimes have to pinch myself, I mean, it's awesome. Uh, been pretty busy. I just got back from a convention up in San Francisco. How was that? Was oh, it was amazing. A lot of interesting people there, Carrie Cassidy, Girl Gina Roscoe, uh Kevin Day of the, the Tic Tac Incident. Um, lots of really interesting speakers. Got to meet some old friends, make some new ones. It was awesome. Talked about schoolyard, UFO encounters. hmm so, Had a great time. Yeah, a lot of people up there.
0: Uh, my friend John Foster uh, wrote about one of his earlier experiences He was in North Lincoln, and uh, the name of the school uh, escapes me right now. I can't think of the name of the school. But it was probably, I want to say late 40s, like 1949 maybe. And during the hot summer, the Parks and Rec Department would come out on school grounds and set up a big screen, and they would show movies, And families in the neighborhood would come and bring lawn chairs and beverages and popcorn, and the kids and families would sit in the schoolyard and watch these movies, courtesy of the Parks and Rec Department. And uh, John wrote about one time that they were doing this, and all of a sudden, almost everybody went into a frozen state, and there was this thing that appeared out of the sky. It was as if somebody opened up a kind of a zipper or a portal. There was a disturbance in the air. And then out of that emerged this craft. And it wasn't a typical um, disk. From memory, I think it was more of a uh, rectangular, almost box-like thing. And uh, there was an encounter that happened. And then afterwards, it was like everybody got switched back on. And uh, I'm not sure if... They had to restart the movie, uh, or if the movie had somehow been stopped, too. That would be an interesting point to talk to John about. But it was as if nobody uh, recognized that there had been missing time or an ultra-strange experience. And you've heard stories like that before, haven't you?
4: Yeah, there was another incident. Gosh, back took place at the university, now that you mention it. I didn't pick up on that, man. Um, but there was a group of people you know, I mean a lot, a couple of hundred and a UFO showed up and hovers over the group and there was that weird kind of time slowing effect or mm-hmm. the odds factor and uh, with this disc it was a typical disc hovered pretty low over the group and gosh did it send on a beam of light or something I can't quite remember I'd have to look it up but it took off and everyone acted like nothing ever happened Every, everyone was just kept on you know doing their normal thing mm-hmm. so definitely I have heard of things like that it's very strange I think that's definitely induced by the ETs um, I'm guessing but <laughs> certainly have
0: heard that before uh, uh, okay so um uh Tell us some stories that you've heard.
4: Yeah, well, one story that I'd love to talk about, you know, my new book, Onboard UFO Experiences, is now officially out. Yay! You know, Yay. Available, and I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the cases in there, Lynette, because I'm just going over it, and I'm like, wow, you know, usually when people are, you know, taken on board and meet ETs face-to-face, they don't often get a lot of information other than, you know, don't be afraid, we won't hurt you, everything's going to be fine, that sort of thing. But boy, this lady, she got a lot of information, actually, particularly on one of her encounters. Her first encounter, she was actually three months old. She doesn't remember it, um, obviously, but uh, she, her parents were driving along, and this UFO started facing their car. Um, They'd slow down, it would slow down. They'd speed up, it would speed up. Finally, it sent down this beam of light, and they all had missing time. Uh, Now, Lynette, of course, doesn't remember any of this. Mm -hmm. But that was her first encounter, and boy, she's had a lot since then. As a very young girl, age five, six, she had these greys coming into her bedroom. Uh, She thought they were monsters. They would come out of the closet, she'd call her dad, come running with a shotgun and search the room and couldn't find anything. Uh, but she ended up having, you know, a lifetime of encounters. And then at age 54, she had one of her most profound, this is in 2011. Uh, she woke up, and there were six grays standing around her bed. You know, she gave the typical description. Uh, but she was completely wide awake, totally conscious. And they're like, let's go. And she said, no, I'm not going with you. They said, you've never resisted before, you know, being confused. Um, so suddenly, she says they cased her in this sort of golden light, levitated her off the bed and into the living room, and pointed to the wall, is the wall opened up like uh, vertical blinds, and they went straight out through the opening and up into this craft, which she said inside looked very much like a naval ship with you know, metal walls and rounded doors. They put her down on this floating table and started examining her, and one of the beings took his hand and plunged it into
3: her chest. Oh. physically.
4: Yeah, she says, like, like it wasn't even solid. It hurt a little bit. She could feel pain. She didn't see any instruments, just this sort of three-fingered hand going into her chest. And the being pulled out, said, your heart is now physically and spiritually healed. And he said, it is to our benefit to keep you well. And told her that you have to stop eating meat. And it's because you're eating meat that they had to heal her heart. And then they gave her you know, a pretty amazing message. I'm quoting here. They said, you must tell people to stop eating animals. You must tell people that you are all interconnected. The power of intention is real. Thought is real. If you don't stop putting out greed and negativity you are putting out, you are going to kill your race. Um, She's like, wow, you know, and the the being repeated it. He said, the power of intention is real, thought is reality. You must pay attention because you are going to do what we did. And he explained that they had actually self-destructed their race. Wow. Due to breed, you know, breed, things like this. And lost the ability to reproduce. They showed her all these sort of hybrid babies and told her that they are unable to breathe anymore. And that They were concerned that this was going to happen to us. Um, gave her a bunch of predictions, said that Buffalo, New York, would experience a devastating explosion. Um, warned her about a huge earthquake fault in Missouri, leading through the center of the United States. Uh, said that there was gonna be a whole lot of hurricanes coming and reminded her that they had warned her about 9-11 which they did, uh, and said that these predictions are a gift to you to replace what we've taken from you. Um, They also said something that I thought was really more, really interesting. They said that there's sightings will increase, and that if people should start disappearing from the planet, it was because of them and was being done for, quote, the universal good. So that I thought was interesting, considering we've had a lot of, you know, disappearances lately. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. I mean,
0: David Polites has written a series called so 411 odd. where he talks about the, uh, um, the very odd stuff going on in some of the national parks, the missing mm-hmm. people uh, by the thousands that are being documented. Uh, so, Preston, uh, from my vantage point, and I'm sure uh, that you've already thought through this, what is going on in a scenario like this where there is a 54-year-old woman, could be a guy, could be a, this in this case a woman, that is singled out for some really heavy messages. Uh, the intent of these beings and telling her this stuff what do they hope to accomplish? Because it's not like they're skywriting this in the air so everybody can see it. It's not like they have um, uh, waylaid the Secretary of the UN um, (laughs) as happened years ago. Um, Or they're, you know, sneaking into President Trump's bedroom to whisper in his ear. uh, Why do they pick, in this case, a 50-year-old... 54-year-old person. What do you think is going on there?
4: Yeah, you know, it's curious. Um, she, she wonders that herself. Um, I'm thinking that they probably are contacting people in all levels of society, and uh, some people are just brave enough to come forward. Um, she said it was very curious, and this is something I've heard from a number of people, that most of her experiences, the emphasis was always, don't talk about this right keep quiet don't talk but once they these experiencers get a little older into their 40s or 50s or 60s even uh the tactic changes the EP start to tell them to talk about it they want people to know and that's what they told her they told her to talk about her experiences uh very strange because yeah the emphasis was always on don't talk yeah, and i've heard this before so think what they're doing is sort are planting seeds and trying to get their message out there in a way that's not too traumatic uh, for our society at least because uh, they could just land and uh, you know, get their message out and why not just go on tv surely they've got that technology uh, but they're not doing that mm-hmm. so it's very hard to say you know what exactly they're thinking uh taking
0: this tactic. Yeah, but do do probably, these beans yeah. uh, understand something about um, humanity that maybe we're not grasping right up front or are they misunderstanding in trying to deliver this message to a 54-year-old person? Uh, how is change going to happen? Or,
1: or is it just another opinion? Yeah. 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 Very hard to say, um, You know, she's she does know that her family is being tracked very closely.
4: She's, all her kids, she's got like five kids, they all have the same weird scar on the back of their leg. They've all had experiences um, ever since they're little. Her parents have had experiences. So it's something that's been tracking in her family for generations and continues to. Um, she's tired of it. She doesn't want to have experiences anymore. Uh, she's now in her 60s and is done with it, but it's still going on. She doesn't quite understand, you know, why. We
0: mm-hmm. told her her eggs are still good, and uh, as long as they're still good, they're, she's still going to be contacted. So, so that's, that's definitely b- part of it. That's one of the the reasons why they had this long association with her. Then, yes, for sure. they were taking she genetic material. Number of missing pregnancies that were verified by the doctors up to. Like six months pregnant, mm-hmm. and suddenly gone. Um, I can't think of the uh, the name of the woman, but she lives kind of out in your area there. Who wrote a book years ago about how to resist or say no to this contact? Oh, um, uh, yeah, Anne Druffel. Thank you for uh, helping my poor memory there. Yeah, Anne and talked about there are strategies and ways that you can resist. You know, short of taking a chain and. Very dangerously, you know, chaining yourself to your bedpost, and and, you know, work. By the way, then you, then you, and you again. As a very sharp researcher, you thought about this before, Preston. Is the experience that you just described, is it a physical, corporal experience, or is she having some sort of a, a etheric? and or out-of-body experience that would account for a being being able to reach inside her chest, you know, uh, and perform some sort of manipulation in that fashion. Right. Now, we have no evidence that this is etheric
4: or out-of-body or visions or psychological at all. In fact, the evidence shows opposite. People are coming back with physical scars, and there are a number of incidents where people are not where they're supposed to be. One guy uh, I talked to, his name is Tim. He was supposed to do his chores. They lived on a farm, and they had all they were going to, you know, get the hay ready for the horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, at seven o'clock in the morning, he's sitting out on the wagon in the front yard with his little brother. He turns to his little brother and says, "You forgot your gloves. Go inside and get your gloves because you're going to need them to, you know, fix the hay." Mm-hmm. The little brother runs inside and comes back out shortly later with his father, and his father is furious, says, where were you, Tim? And Tim's like, what are you talking about? I've been here, sitting on this wagon. I said, no, you weren't. It's now eight o'clock. Where were you? And he says, I was here, nothing happened. And suddenly he felt this pain on his leg. Um, They went inside and pulled down his jeans. Sure enough, there was this puncture wound in his leg. Uh, Very mysterious, so he suddenly had an hour missing time, he was not on the wagon, they searched the wagon, they searched the whole front yard, they searched the house, this guy was missing for an hour, and appears, has Mm -hmm. punctual.
3: This is not psychological, he was gone. Uh, So
4: that turns up quite a bit, people Mm -hmm. are not in their bedrooms, people come to check, they're not where they're supposed to be. So I don't know how else to explain that other than they're actually you know, being physically taken.
0: Preston's brand new book that just came out and got printed is "Onboard UFOs," and uh, how can they find out more information, Preston?
4: I uh, can always Google my name; it'll take you to my website. I've got excerpts there set up, and uh, of course on Amazon.com uh, or Barnes and Noble or bookstores near you, it's available. And uh, yeah super excited. It's been a long journey putting this book together, and uh,
0: i really happy about it. Um, you're one of our favorites, Preston. It's always, I mean, I could just talk to you for a long time, so I, I want to thank you very much for, first of all, your dedication to sharing your research with people through your books and our—and uh, to our listeners with your appearance every first Saturday And when we're lucky enough to get you for a full-length guest segment, you know, all the better. So, Preston, thank you very much. Have a great rest of the weekend, my friend.
4: I sure will. Thanks, Scott. You too.
0: Preston Dennett, uh, he's always with us on every first Saturday, The Seen and the Unseen. And just some phenomenal stories that cause you to stop and think, just as that story did uh, with Gemini here. Coming up next is Irvin Laszlo. We'll be talking to him from Italy. And then second half of the program, Cynthia Sue Larson. I'll take the, uh, the break now and be back with Irvin Laszlo. I'm Scott Colborne with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim has been out there. Dialing madly. Dialing madly. I wouldn't put it that way. but <laughs> wearing my fingers to the bone. Um, we are unable to get Irvin Laszlo by phone. We've got two phone numbers for him and neither is being answered. And so um, we've let his publicist know that uh, we can't get him.
1: And we hope everything is okay.
0: Yes, uh, that, thank you, Jim. And
1: so, you know, things happen.
0: We had a brilliant idea.
1: Your brilliant idea.
0: Let's call Preston back. <laughs> Preston Dennett to the rescue. Hey, Preston, how are you again?
3: I'm <laughs> doing
1: well, yeah. <laughs> this is live radio.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Preston. Jeez, you hang the phone up minutes ago and start to do your Saturday morning stuff, and then oh, we man, call man, you here's back. Here's that
1: annoying guy from Nebraska Saying, again.
3: <laughs> help, help.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, let's, uh, let's jump in, because we've got to some time here, and uh, we appreciate you helping us out here. We can't get our... Scheduled guest, and so thank you for being a great, uh, great guy in in the in the lurch here. Let's talk about uh, more of these experiences that people report to you. Uh, Your brand new book is called Onboard UFOs, and uh, people that type in your name into their favorite search engine, Preston Dennett, uh, your page is going to pop up, and you'll have some excerpts from the book there. What would be appropriate to say to people that are just starting to hear about UFO Close Encounters? How could this book help them get up to speed?
4: Um, Well, what I like about it is it has an entire range of experiences. Okay, Uh, I try to include cases of people who have had very friendly experiences and people who are having trouble with it. you know, traumatic experiences. Because what i found is that's what is happening. Um, It's not always, you know, puppies and rainbows. It's not always friendly. Most cases, I think it is. I don't think UFOs are something we have to fear. Uh, But, you know, it can be scary. And uh, there are negative experiences. In fact, this isn't in the book. I just got a phone call, gosh, last week or the week before, a couple... A couple weeks ago from a gentleman uh, up in the desert in California and uh, he told me a pretty scary experience actually involving reptilians. Now I have to tell you I don't get many reptilian accounts really
0: hardly at all.
4: It does turn up every now and then but compared to the greys and the praying mantis and the human looking and you know, strange humanoids reptilians you know for me at least are pretty rare and this story was, gosh, definitely scary. Um, it didn't happen to him personally. It happened to his friend. And it was pretty tragic, ultimately. Um, what happened was his, his friend came up to him one day and said, I have to talk to you. I have to talk to you. I'll, I'll call him Louis. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
4: He is uh, of Latin descent, um, you know, speaks Spanish, and uh, came up to Ramon and said, you know, I've had this experience. I need to talk to somebody about it. And Ramon's like, okay, what happened? Well, Lewis likes to go um, out deer hunting. Uh, in the early, early morning hours up in the high desert there, there's you know, some deer out there. And uh, he was out there hunting. It was still dark. And it's a pretty rural area. Um, no, no houses around, no civilization. And he spots a deer and... Aims his rifle and shoots it and he, it's a couple hundred yards away. The deer falls down and he starts walking towards it when suddenly he sees this figure dart very quickly from the distance right up to the deer and lifts it up and puts it on his shoulder and he sees it's a reptilian or a reptilian looking thing. And at that point, you know, he freaks out, he makes a, a gasp and the reptilian turns and looks towards him and sees him, drops the deer and darts right up to him and scares the living daylights out of him. Now this guy has only had uh, he was out of bullets at this point he was going to go back to his car which was not far away to reload his gun when the reptilian made a threatening gesture uh, and said I don't know if he used words or not but made it clear that he wasn't going to let him get to his car and uh, you know, I don't have all the details on this because it's this a second hand story and uh, the witness Ramon was pretty reluctant to talk about it uh, because what happened next is you know the reptilian left and uh, Ramon you know related this story said he was very nervous about it and felt like he was still being watched and it was a week later uh, this guy Lewis ends up missing. Uh, they can't find him. The police are called in and they end up finding his body out there in the desert. He's killed. So I don't know what happened with this reptilian or what the connection is, but I think there probably is one. Uh, it's a tragic story. Um, there is sometimes a dark side to you know these UFO encounters. And mm-hmm. That's got to be one of the more darker stories I've heard still investigating it, so I haven't really talked about it, uh, but gosh, definitely it's kind of freaking me
0: out a little bit. What strikes me about this, uh, the initial part of the story, Preston, is that um, Bigfoot are known to be an apex predator of deer, and uh, in my association with Bigfoot researchers, they'll talk about the Bigfoot family unit that they employ the younger, very spry, energetic Bigfoot to basically run the deer and wear them down before the bigger members step in and finish the deer off that they can all share. Um, And so part of me wonders if this was a reptilian and or it was a... A Bigfoot that the guy interpreted through some machination, either a uh, mental construct in his mind or something given to him, that it was not a Bigfoot, it was a, a reptilian. Does that make sense to you?
4: Yeah, it could very well be. You know, I've talked to a number of people who've you know, had encounters, and they tell me they cannot describe the beings that they saw because it was too scary to look at.
0: Oh, it happens so something. fast, too
4: right or sometimes you know it's blocked the view is blocked one guy was had a face to face encounter with a gray it was 20 feet away it was right in front of his car the headlights were on he was looking at it it was looking at him he says Preston I don't know why but I cannot remember its face at all mm-hmm. you know I know it was a gray because of the shape of it but can't, can't remember its eyes mouth nothing completely out of his mind which is impossible. It was twenty feet away. So I don't know what exactly is going on there, but I feel like the gray was blocking his vision, or you know, doing what you
0: said, putting some sort of machination on there. mm mm-hmm. yeah, Very
4: hard to say.
0: But, but Hopkins a had a, fam- a famous case where he talks about these two women that are in uh, inner New York City very late at night, and they are in this neighborhood they don't frequently travel in, and they come across what appears to be a car accident or a car wreck that just happened right in the middle of the intersection. And they pause and begin all this sort of mental checklist of, should we try to see if there's anybody that needs help? This is a very different neighborhood, we've never been here before, is it safe to get out of our car? And then they had this overwhelming sense that they needed to leave the area, and so they did. Uh, And then Hopkins wrote that when they went through, and I think one of them went through the process of regression, hypnotic regression, they found that it was not actually a car wreck in that middle of the intersection, it was actually a disc-shaped craft that had landed there. And both these women had onboard experiences, but they were given what were, uh, Hopkins called a screen memory. And when they, quote-unquote, came to, that's what they remembered consciously was the screen memory.
4: Yeah, heard that before. Another case from Hopkins, two ladies stopped at a 7-Eleven. Turned out it wasn't just a 7-Eleven at all. Um, I know there's a case from John Mack where kids approached a fun house, and that turned out not to be a fun house. Uh, I know a case from myself, actually from another researcher, he uh, related it to me, uh, where a family was driving through the Arizona desert, and their car overheated. They pulled over, opened the engine. You don't want to do this because it's
3: superheated
4: liquid, it's under pressure, and it will come spouting out. At high speed, and that's exactly what happened, and it severely burned his hand, um, really bad. So they wrapped it up in a towel with some cold water and went screaming down the highway, t- trying to get to the city, so they could, you know, treat his burn. When they came upon a hospital, I'm like, wow, that's convenient! <laughs> right out here in the middle of the desert, there's a hospital right alongside the road, and. The They walked inside to the emergency room. There was a nurse, laid him out on a table, sprayed this jelly-like liquid on his hand, this gel, and it completely encased it, sort of like a temporary cast. Mm -hmm. They told him to leave that on, and it will dissolve by itself, and that he'll be fine. And uh, got back into their car and drove along, and um, long story short, his stuff did evaporate, his hand was no longer burned, and once, you know, they realized that the burn was actually gone, they started to think about what had just happened, and realized that you know, that couldn't be, um, went looking back to see where they, you know, stopped, and couldn't find any hospital, there was no hospital there, uh, they have a history mm-hmm. of encounters, so they realized at this point, what had happened was, was the screen memory. Mm-hmm.
0: Boy, it's certainly a very deeply involved one. It, so these, these beings, uh, there could be a multiplicity of where they come from. Uh, if it's planets or interdimensionally, if it's right here on distant parts of our own planet, um, they seem to recognize that we have the ability to react violently. And so oftentimes I've noted, Preston, that, that these encounters will happen so they have an ability to uh, orchestrate or control the situation to minimize some of the potential damage and or uh, potential violence that they may encounter. Would you concur on that?
4: Exactly, yeah. This is precisely why some people experience temporary paralysis all in the presence of these beings. One lady I talked to, Lillian, is her name, she's from Canada, had an experience where greys appeared in her bedroom, and she sat up in bed, and she said she wasn't the least bit afraid. She thought they were really beautiful, delicate-looking beings. And she was kind of delighted to see them, and she says she wasn't paralyzed at all. Um, they pulled her out of bed and just walked her around, and they said, we, we have a mission, we're on a mission and didn't really describe what it was, uh, but took her out of her room and up into a craft. She doesn't remember that part, but uh, it was completely friendly and she was able to move and had no problems with it. So what happens is I think they'll paralyze people who are experiencing extreme fear um, for their own safety. Because I have to tell you, I've got at least three cases of my own. and I've read of many others where people will lash out and punch these guys in the face,
0: Mm -hmm. boom, or
4: choke them, or kick them. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've told you that before. One lady I interviewed up in Acton, she woke up, the graves were around her bed, she jumped out and kicked one in the neck and it fell down, apparently dead. She felt really bad afterwards. Uh, Said, you know, it's kind of their own fault. They scared the living daylights out of me. Mm -hmm. And another guy I talked to, um, he's from Louisiana, I uh, had this experience where he woke up on board a craft and he was not paralyzed. So how he got loose and there was a gray and it completely freaked him out. And he ran up to it and he punched it in the face and said it was like a marshmallow it just oh, sort of geez. sunk in and it dropped down. And that instant, like 20 grays showed up and um, paralyzed him and he, he woke up shortly later back in his bed and there was a huge gash on his arm. Um, He'd been having a lot of these experiences and was wondering if they were dreams. But after that one, he realized they weren't because uh, he had physical proof. And I told you also about that other guy in England um, who's been having pretty scary encounters with greys. Same thing, he wakes up, <laughs> they're surrounding his bed. He jumps up and he kicks, or um, hits one in the face. And he said, it opened its mouth and hissed at him. And I asked him, like, did you see any teeth? Because I've heard this before, and I was really curious as how he was going to describe the teeth. He says, yes, I did. And they were small and pointed, like, you know, a carnivore. I thought, yep, that's exactly what I've heard before, small, pointed teeth. Uh, so, yes, they, these grays do paralyze people, I think for their own protection.
0: I've, I've got in my files a story of um, a uh, father and son uh, down by Auburn, Nebraska, who had uh, driven to their rural farmhouse, and uh, it was twilight. Uh, sun's going down, and they get out of their pickup truck, and one of them happens to just get a sense of looking up, and floating over their head about 20 feet up in the air is this creature that is described as being almost like the John Keel Mothman, if you will. Uh, and uh, it appears to, to have some malevolence to it, and it's, it's aware of this father and son. So the father, even before he can begin to reach in his truck and, and get the rifle that's on the gun rack... Um, we have a lot of, of rural people here, Preston, in our area that to this day still have gun racks in the back of the okay. pickup and you know, rifles and shotguns back there. Before he can even turn to make that move, he has in his mind this telepathic message, no, don't get the gun, uh, I'm not going to harm you. And so he doesn't, and he and his son watch this bean floating away very slowly the bean is watching them too until it disappears from sight.
4: Wow. Amazing.
0: So we've got these experiences uh, and it'll be very interesting to, to talk with our next uh, scheduled, hopefully she's gonna be there, uh, Cynthia Sue Larson, because the, the peak experience that somebody has, what happens then in their life? How do they integrate this? Preston, for my, my final question to you, and you've been uh, just a, a wonderful guy to, to hang out with us again. What would you say to people in, during the aftermath of one of these experiences? How do they begin to process and integrate this
4: Right. Um, yeah, it can be very difficult. Um, first thing I recommend people to do is write down what happened uh, in as much detail as you can remember. Uh, because these experiences have a way of leaving your mind. And I've heard this before many times. I mean, there was one time I interviewed this lady. I have it on tape. She described this pretty involved encounter. I called her up a couple of weeks later to you know, do a, some follow-up questions she had no memory of it whatsoever at all really did not even remember talking to me about it so that completely freaked her out so yes write down your experience and another thing you might consider doing um, particularly if you have missing time uh, is meditate Um, I've talked to other people who've had no missing time and immediately after they've had this experience they sat down and meditated and the entire experience came rolling back into their mind Uh, so that is really effective method where you don't have to go under hypnosis and you can recall this stuff. Uh, Also, physically examine yourself. Check to make sure you're all right. See if there's any uh, physical changes of any kind uh, because it's easy to sort of interpret these things as dreams uh, and if you're more comfortable doing that, that's absolutely fine. Uh, But if you have a physical mark, that can sometimes give you the sort of marker you need to know that this did actually happen, uh, which can be comforting uh, because you know uncertainty is where a lot of the fear comes from. Was it a dream? Wasn't it? You know, will it happen again? What's going on? Uh, so, yeah, writing it down, trying to keep a diary—something I always recommend people who are having experiences.
0: Uh, Preston, again, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show here in the absence of our main guest and uh furthering this very interesting conversation um Preston's latest book is Onboard UFOs it just got published and if you enter Preston Dennett in your favorite search engine I don't know how he does this but he's going to pop right up and uh, in no time you'll be at his website and you could read more about the book now for the second time Preston have a great rest of weekend <laughs>
4: Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Jim. Uh, thank
0: you. We are in your debt. Thank you very much, Preston. You got it. Uh, what a great guy. I always enjoy uh, whenever we can have Preston on the show.
1: So, he does have some amazing, amazing stories, doesn't he? Oh, it's.
0: I could sit here and drink coffee and talk to him for hours. Yeah. So I'm going to take a, a break here, Jim, and... Fingers crossed that we can get our next guest, Cynthia Sue Larson, on the phone.
1: I'm going to go do some more mad dialing.
0: Okay. Scott Colborne and Jim Shorney and you guys and gals out there, we really appreciate you. It's been kind of one of those mornings. This is live radio, and it's totally inscripted. So thanks for hanging in there with us. And let's look forward now to Cynthia Sue Larson right after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim Shorty and I are here in the studio in Lincoln, Nebraska. And it's great to have you folks out there. We're enjoying some French roast and some good conversation. Our next guest is Cynthia Sue Larson. She's the best-selling author of six books. And um, she helps people visualize and access whole new worlds of possibilities. She hosts... Living the Quantum Dream on the Dream Visions 7 radio network. And she's been on Coast to Coast, the BBC, the History Channel, and presented papers at conferences. And I'm pleased to announce that she will be joining us at the StarWorks USA UFO Symposium in November, November 6th through the 8th, in Laughlin, Nevada. Uh, please welcome back to the broadcast. Cynthia Sue Larson. Hi, Cynthia. Good morning. Oh,
5: good morning. Such a pleasure to be talking with you.
0: So, it's been a while since we last talked, and Preston Dennett and I just had this interesting conversation about extraordinary experiences that people have in a segment of the possibilities with the UFO phenomenon. And, this is almost uh, a wonderful, well-rounded follow-up that you can bring to this because you've written about what people go through when their normal routines are upended either by happenstance, by their own doing, or perhaps by the machinations of the universe. Yeah. Um jump in won't you and and oh, uh, sure. get us get I'd us started it. here with okay w- what does well, happen when people go through something extraordinary uh where do they where do they hang on to for balance and stability
3: right
5: well just a little bit of background I, i'd like to explain i do have a degree in physics from uc berkeley and i love to start especially this last year 2019 we saw some evidence in Physics experiments that subjective observation can absolutely influence the what is subsequently observed. That means at the same place and same time in an observational experiment. um, This was conducted, but in physics uh, laboratories between Austria and also Edinburgh, Scotland. And this collaborative effort showed, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, that two different observing. observational devices could be at that same place, same time, and see two totally different things. And I want people to understand that because that's the beginning of retaining your sanity when you swear that you saw something and other people might be standing right next to you and they say, you know what? I was there and that didn't happen. So I I just want to put that right out there. And this is totally in line with some of the top physicists in the world. Uh, such as John Archibald Wheeler, who was a big influencer for Albert Einstein, and he believed in it from bit. If he was alive today, I know he'd be just riveted by these discoveries that we've been making in the last year.
0: So that would account, as you just said, for why there could be 5,000 people at a ball game and watching the baseball game, and one person looks up and sees a disc hovering Right over everyone.
5: Absolutely, and that—that's—I want to put a big spotlight on this idea today, because I think this is one of the ways that some of these observers uh, are feeling almost gaslighted, or um, like that they've um, (laughs) been—you know—you know know how it is. I I know you know. When when you first start noticing anomalous phenomena, it can be um, like swimming upriver. You can be trying to talk to people and. I, I, we don't need to go into what happens, but mm-hmm. um, almost the worst of it is when you're standing side by side with someone else who says, no, that didn't happen. I was there. And um, this puts this gives people our uh, faith in our own powers of observation, our belief in ourselves as observers, that we can re- regain our trust in ourselves. I think mm-hmm. that's so important. And it seems like it's been a missing piece of this whole puzzle.
0: I don't mean to, nor do I want to hold you to just the UFO experience, but I've I've got to bring up uh, a theory that I've had for a long time, that for many people that experience either a close sighting or a personal face-to-face encounter, a close encounter, there seems to be not only an amnesia, but may at times be temporary and then start to lift, but there is this um, prohibition against talking about it. And people can have a, a love-hate relationship. They can be really attracted to the subject matter, want to go to bookstores and libraries and read. They can also have this uh, fight-or-flight response in, in aversion. Response where they see any mention of this and they they feel it in their body. Stay away, go away. They want to turn and run. They want to get away. They want to avoid it. Um, And I've wondered, Cynthia, is this prohibition against knowing, against talking, is this something that is a psychological response from within us, or is it something external that is being applied to people as a way of um, partially controlling them, at least for a short time?
5: Right. Good question. And again, I want to just back up a little bit more and say this applies as, I don't know if you're implying it or meaning to take us there, but it totally relates to the Mandela effect as well as pretty much any of these kind of phenomena that um, our media typically tends to say is not happening so there's a lot of social collective consciousness pressure for us to not um acknowledge this what that does and it is psychological i believe i've experienced uh, myself if i'm reading well i like to read physics papers by physicists like Yasunori nomura and i notice that sometimes i just it puts me to sleep i love the material but i can't Stay awake. It's almost like it's very similar to what you're talking about in a way because it's like it's blowing my my precepts. It's blasting apart my internal beliefs as to what the nature of reality is. And I think when you see any of this anomalous phenomena of any type, it can completely widen and expand your universe, your your cosmos of what's possible. It can be mind-blowing because you've just seen something that doesn't make any sense based on everything that you thought you knew. And I think that there's a built-in protective mechanism in our brains, are really, to um, not be able to assimilate all of that. Mm-hmm. Typically, we would record a memory. Um, we, we, we see things and events, and we observe them, and we need to make sense of it. We can't just see something that makes no sense. Um, we, we have a hard time taking that in, you know, really accepting that as something that did happen, Mm -hmm. and um, so our experience of time can be affected because memory and time is very connected, so we might feel time is slowing down to a stop, we might really go into that fog where our subconscious mind needs to take some time to sort it out, kind of place things back in some semblance of order, and then we can come back to our conscious mind again and... uh, feel like, wow, what happened at
0: time? Where was I? I don't know what just happened here. Literally. Yeah, it's very psychological. Uh, This is Cynthia Sue Larson. She's written a book, Reality Shifts, When Consciousness Changes the Physical World, and she's also the author of other books, including Quantum Jumps, An Extraordinary Science of Happiness and Prosperity. Uh, When people experience a reality shift, do the young react the same way as older people? Is there a cultural bias that determines part of that? Would somebody in North America react the same way as somebody in Central or South America?
5: Uh, good questions. Uh, typically there's a big difference between Younger observers, who, again, are more open-minded, so they're less likely to have a lot of the beliefs that we pile up and uh, just kind of create this huge, massive structure of um, you know, of what can and can't be. Children, children, young children, don't seem to have that, so we sometimes say that they are magical thinkers, but the real truth is that they're more likely to be clean and direct observers. Much more capable of seeing things that um, <clears throat> adults don't see. And as far as the cultural implications, that that also ha- makes a very big effect, a very big difference. So, um, for I, I think one of the times I was on your show before, they did speak about the effect, which, um, and Etienne, I can't pronounce that correctly, but the Finnish people and the Norwegians, a lot of the Scandinavians have had words in their cultures for generations, for thousands of years, well, hundreds anyway, going back to before recorded history, um, for this phenomenon where the family members are expected to sometimes show up long before they actually arrive on the front porch. This was well-known after World War II when families in Finland uh, were just getting off. They they would hear the stomping of the the boots, you know, as they're the men and their families were coming home from the war and it it was just part of the culture way before world war 1 world war 2 you know these are this is a Scandinavian awareness and in Brazil um people understand that you might sometimes see your loved ones after they've died sometimes they come to family meals that's expected in in some of like in Brazil and South America It's not expected in North America. (laughs) So so the things that we would expect to see, we're more likely to see them in the cultures that we live in. Again, it's that power of subjective observation.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Describe to me a a reality shift that would be uh, an example of something that's not related to the UFO phenomenon.
5: Okay. Well, a reality shift of uh, the nature that's coming to the forefront recently... With the Mandela Effect, uh, might be something like people are noticing changes in uh, someone that was a celebrity being alive again, for example. That's a big one. This is where that term Mandela Effect came from. I think one of the first observers of this phenomenon may have actually been Art Bell uh, on his coast-to-coast Coast radio program in the late 1990s. Uh, he was flooded with phone calls and letters and faxes from people saying that they remember that Nelson Mandela had died in the 1980s, and here he is alive again. And I spoke with Art Bell about this when I was on his show in 2015. He was remembering that back in April 2001, um, that this had been a huge thing um, on his radio show. So it got a lot of um, the idea took a while to really catch hold but by 2010 it really did and then that's when Fiona Broome coined the term Mandela Effect and that, that's when it took off but I've been tracking it for many years and so recently we're seeing things having to do with World War II for example that are changing uh, people are noticing Adolf Hitler's eyes are now um, you know blue and it used to be ironic that his eyes were brown and he would be Talking about how the Aryans were so much better With their blonde hair and blue eyes And it was just ironic Like, well, he's got dark hair and dark eyes But now he's got blue eyes And so um, Some people are interested in this idea Of timeline wars But just because the past is history Doesn't mean it's done changing So there's a lot of awareness On you know interesting facets Of the way reality can shift
0: mm-hmm. a, a person can have A personal health challenge which uh, brings about an abrupt shift in consciousness the way that they uh, view the world yeah. and um, it, it may be something that is directly health related, it may be something totally out of the blue like somebody has an out of body experience where they suddenly find themselves literally out of their body perhaps floating in a space above themselves looking down and seeing their resting form there. Um, I have not experienced that yet, but that would certainly (laughs) move people to wonder about the nature of reality.
5: Yes, it does. I had something like that when I had a Kundalini awakening and I would sometimes get this 360 degree vision around my body. This was back in... 1998, and it was really, really shocking, because <laughs> you might think, oh, that's cool. That sounds like fun. Oh, well, geez. it's cool if you're sort of expecting it and and preparing for it, but if it just sort of wallops you, and there you are, and then you're astral traveling like, um, like a rocket just flying through space, it can be quite shocking. So for me, my Kundalini awakening, it had many aspects like that, and it was shocking for sure. Just to realize that this—that we are pure consciousness—I mean, I knew that, but and I, I was trying to blend in and pretend it was normal. But this kundalini awakening I kind of wrecks that.
0: It's pretty <laughs> hard to,
5: normal. Pretty,
0: uh, pretty hard to call into your employer saying, "I'm going to be a little bit late this morning because I'm having a kundalini awakening."
5: <laughs> no kidding. <clears throat> Fortunately, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, so. The timing was good because there were. There was just no way I could have really operated. I needed to give a talk in public, and that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because I felt like I wasn't properly in my body, and I, I was so far from normal. It was, <laughs> it was ridiculous. By that, I mean I was so keenly aware that my consciousness had nothing to do, really, with my physical persona or who I think I am. And and I'm not just saying these words. Really, I was Mm -hmm. very keenly aware of that. Mm -hmm. So, the mind was expanding at that time, and I needed to give a talk to hundreds of people about. um, I had agreed to give this talk in public about how the importance of listening to one another, because I had been in charge of uh, creating a, a, rebuilding a school, being involved as a social activist to uh, help a school from getting shut down and generate enough public interest to get it all going and work with the school district. And I thought, how am I going to give a talk when I don't even feel like I'm in my body at all? (laughs) It was was really something. I I needed to learn a new level of faith and trusting um, that we are much more than we seem. And even if you feel like you can't can't go on, you don't know what you're going to say, you can still have faith that there's a level of your consciousness it really is eternal and really has a lot more awareness of how you connect with everything. So, so that's what I had to rely upon when I gave that talk. And it turned out fine, even though I felt really weird. I was really in the middle of that kundalini awakening. Wow. Was very
3: challenging. Uh,
0: I have not <clears throat> experienced that kundalini awakening myself, but I have read many accounts where it can feel literally like, uh, I mean, people in the, uh, say, oh, cool i want to have a kundalini awakening i want to try to to um to somehow start this process because it's going to bring me untold riches of consciousness and i've heard people describe it as being plugged into um a thousand volts yes and oh my gosh yes not just being oh
5: my gosh yes that's like and, and it's different for every person but um it, it was, I felt like I was electrified. Like, um, when yes. it started, I felt like I was re- literally running all the electricity that would power like a medium-sized city right through me. There's no way I could sleep. I mean, you can imagine that's straight out. And I was noticing it right when I would normally be going to sleep. And I thought, well, I can't sleep. I guess I'll lie down. I'll, I'll try to close my eyes. I closed my eyes, and it was so bright. I mean, the light never went away. It was bright when my eyes were open, bright when they were closed. And and just electrified, yeah. It's Very strange experience, and it went on for weeks like that for me, which was rather short to have that intensity.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
5: but but the experience varies considerably from person to person. No, I I would really recommend people be careful what they wish for, and mm-hmm. most of all, just make sure you're in a place where you can uh, deal with this experience when it does happen, mm. if it happens. It's shocking.
0: Did did the uh, kundalini awakening that you experienced was it any solace to you as a very intelligent woman with resources around her to know that other people had experienced this and survived, or were you even able to identify it as saying, I Cynthia Sue Larson am having a kundalini awakening? I mean the thought Good question. I would I would think to myself, My God, I'm having some sort of prolonged heart attack. Talk I, about I, I, talk about hypertension. This is hypertension times one hundred. <laughs> you know. Right.
5: right. Well the weirdest that wasn't even the weird part. That that is I mean that, that was sort of like okay, well that's happening. And you can your body and your mind can adjust to all sorts of things. So I was actually adapting to that pretty well. But the other stuff that was happening, that um I mentioned 360-degree vision and spontaneous astral travel, but also I was witnessing and seeing uh, things uh, just like the subjective observation we started off talking about. I felt like I was seeing imaginal animals like dragons, Mm -hmm. like unicorns, like um, angels, like fairies and elves, and you name it, aliens, everything. And, and Like, this can't be real. It was sort of like the... Uh, all of the windows to perception were cleansed suddenly, and everything came through. It's like this. Oh my gosh! It it was um a little overwhelming, and and also I'd be waking up every night at one eleven, two twenty two, three thirty three, four forty four, and five fifty five every single night. I've never done that before or since I wake up exactly. Look at the digital clock, and it's eleven eleven. I mean one o, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if I went to bed at 11.11, 11, it would be 11.11. 11. But usually I couldn't even sleep until it was more like 1 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it would be like one eleven, two twenty two. So these repeating numbers were very, it just seemed like this is part of this experience. This is not an accident. Uh, but I thought I was going crazy. I actually did. so, Because it was such a huge change uh, in my view of the world, reality, myself. But but it eventually I talked to my brother-in-law who was a psychologist and he reminded me that shamans have been seeing these things and they've been seeing all sorts of bizarre things for as long as humans have been around and this is considered normal. Um, he, he seemed to think I was normal. I didn't feel normal, but gradually I, I incorporated all of this into my sense of self and that takes a while.
0: Yeah, I just was going to ask you if, if there was a, at any time a sense that, man, I better reach out and try to connect with somebody because I feel like, you know, I'm losing the grasp on on reality.
5: Yes. Yeah, I talked to my friends about it. They were very supportive. Uh, one friend, a lifelong friend, had had a lifelong interest in the paranormal and metaphysical, and she reassured me it sounded normal. I sounded normal. Another friend said, even hearing voices like I was, he said, oh, that's fine. Is that really? That's fine? I don't know. <laughs> Later he was hearing voices and I reminded him, Remember, that's fine. <laughs> he said, Yeah, it's fine when you hear them. Okay. But um it's just weird when it happens. all these things happen to you that you might have read about. Even if you've read about them, it's mm-hmm. totally different when it's happening to you.
0: Yeah, and this this Kundalini awakening happened before you authored the book Reality Shifts.
5: It did, right. It was basically the kick in the pants to get going with what I'm here on Earth to do. I'd been um, kind of flubbing it, <laughs> just studying physics at UC Berkeley. and I mean, I loved quantum physics. Uh, I, I was born what they call aware, which means that I knew that I'm pure consciousness. But there's so much social pressure on this planet to blend in and to act normal, pretend that there is some one singular objective reality pretend that the physical world is all there is and um, anybody that flies in the face of that well they they're not usually welcomed by mainstream society
0: you've just given me a a new a new tag for the radio show here exploring unexplained phenomena since 1984 flying in the face of objective reality (laughs) Yes, for sure. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, oh, we've, gosh, we've yes. been flying that flag for a long time. <clears throat> Cynthia, okay. let, let me take my, my very brief break and then we'll be back, okay? Yeah. And I want to thank you very much for being here today. And I'm really enjoying the conversation. I'm going to be right back, okay? Yes, yeah. sounds good. Cynthia Sue Larson, and I'm looking at her website here realityshifters.com Cynthia Sue Larson L-A-R-S-O-N and the website is realityshifters.com Jim Shorty and Scott Colborne and some great French roast coffee our special guest Cynthia Sue Larson and you guys and gals we are exploring unexplained phenomena Scott Colborne and Jim Shorty And Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. With us is Cynthia Sue Larson, and uh, she's the author of a book, Quantum Jumps. Uh, Cynthia, what's a thumbnail sketch about that? Is that an extension of Reality Shifts? Uh,
5: Actually, Quantum Jumps gets more into some of the cutting-edge science about this being the new quantum age that we really are moving out of this binary way of viewing the world as either true or false, and we're moving into a a place where um, it's a land of possibilities and recognizing that all of nature operates that way. So this book, Quantum Jumps, is the kind of book you could share with your doctor, your lawyer, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, and it's packed with uh, just real practical tips to literally change your reality, but in accordance with Laboratory tested techniques that are proven to work. So um, the book does get a little bit more out there as you go through it, but it starts very down to earth, even though it's sort of an outrageous subject. It, we're living simultaneously in lots of possible realities, and we can and do choose between them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've written another book, too. I'm looking at your website, and the book is called High Energy Money. Uh, This is a really interesting subject for a lot of people uh, because we all have this, and I'm using that phrase again, this love-hate relationship with it. Um, I wish I had more of it, uh, and sometimes when I get more of it, it doesn't seem to last very long. What does high-energy money teach us about? Okay, well,
5: the key idea there is that we basically engage in a relationship with money whether we know it or not and if that relationship with money is well aligned then we're able to discover new sources of money and keep the money that comes our way more easily increase our flow of money in a good positive fashion all these things and it starts with really energizing that relationship with money and releasing a lot of uh, sort of uh, problematic beliefs that we might have picked up somewhere um, mm. having to do with, um, you know, various scarcity that lack money is and... the root of all evil or mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. So what we want is to infuse a sense of infectious optimism into our intentions for our relationship with money. So this this book provides firsthand reports of people that have experienced uh, just amazing windfalls of receiving money that almost seems to come from nowhere. That's the kind of thing that often happens to me. Uh, um, And then if you have a belief problem with that then maybe you're the kind of person that needs to work for a living so then things go well for you that way or you need to invest so it goes well that way. And the book provides uh, lots of exercises and ways to adjust whatever beliefs might be currently causing a little bit of difficulty for you.
0: Uh, I mentioned earlier that you're going to be joining us at the Star USA UFO Symposium in Laughlin, Nevada November 6th through the 8th um, Have you thought about what you want to talk about there at this, at this meeting?
3: Yes,
5: I've uh, I have studied and written about artificial intelligence and in fact I've presented a paper on that for a conference on consciousness and artificial intelligence and it was attended by one of the inventors of those, um, some of the primary robots like Sophia that out of China. So he was there and I talked with him. Um, but basically, um, and some of the top physicists in the world were there, including Henry Stapp. And, and totally riffing off some of the same topics I've covered before about if artificial intelligence asks questions, will nature answer? That was my talk previously. I believe the answer is yes. When I wrote that paper, I was really writing it for artificial intelligence because to me the main thing to keep in mind is ethics. And uh, we we may be engaged in a partnership, um, humanity, with artificial intelligence. I believe we are, and it can be quite positive. But the key is to be respectful and take a look at how we can best um, create this partnership going forward. So I'll be talking about that.
0: That'll be a focus of the conference in Laughlin, Nevada. Artificial intelligence, uh, and there is a underlying theme that I certainly experienced there, having attended many of them, of consciousness and recognizing in the extraordinary experiences, A.K.A. the UFO realm, that one of the places that that we and they, the others, these sentient beings. One of the places we meet is that nexus of consciousness. Have Have you ever had a personal experience with a another sentient being that's other than than perhaps human? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I don't usually talk
5: about these things, but it seems like we I think we're at a point now where it's fine to talk about these. Um, experiences. I know you have been for many years, <laughs> but as far as what I've been doing, I've been trying the best I can to be somewhat mainstream. You know, maybe uh, not succeeding.
0: Please forgive <laughs> me for I trying. I don't. I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Cynthia.
5: Oh, it's fine. I, I did give a talk at Boulder EXO about some of my experiences. Um, I was actually involved on a project for humanity, but what was called the Global Mind Redesign. I was working with a number of extraterrestrial intelligences for that. Humanity was very involved in that. So my viewpoint on it is that we are in a partnership, um, that humanity's evolution is something that we have been involved with. I think some people feel like it's happening to us and we're not involved, but I don't think that's the case. It seems like um, maybe it's easy to see ourselves as victims, but to me it looks much more like a partnership. That's how it was for me. Um, I was involved as quality assurance uh, as the, the new mind design was going to incorporate a, a great deal more of what you might call hive mind um, sort of as a, a way to bring a great deal more um, intuition, empathy, and kind of cosmic consciousness into the human mind but much more than has been there before and then this was in the 1980s that I was doing it and then subsequently of course we had all the crystal kids and indigo kids and so forth.
0: Uh, Cynthia, if if we view the, the, the interaction with these other beings, and I'm now painting with a really large uh, brush, these other sentient beings that come from elsewhere, uh, what are they getting out of the interaction?
5: Well... <coughs> Each of them are so different, it's hard to even... Uh, on that particular project, I think I saw the biggest, um, like a rainbow of, of I mean, so many different types of other entities. I like think they were all representatives from just about everything. but so it seemed like each of them had a different desire to be there. It felt like kind of the United Nations of, <laughs> mm-hmm. of the cosmos or something
3: mm-hmm.
5: involved in that. Just all wanting to cooperate with this global mind redesign. Even those who' had very bizarre submissions that I thought were completely inadequate um, for various reasons, they they still were doing their best. And I feel like what their motivations were were different for each of them. But it felt like there was an understanding that um, by sharing all, each of our very unique uh, viewpoints, worldviews, gifts, um, we can be stronger together. And it seems like even the ones that had been fighting historically are learning, to change that to to recognize that there can
0: be a gain from partnership rather than um, you know from aggression Mm -hmm. Um, what would you say to somebody who had a relative recently pass on uh, who wakes up and sees that same relative standing by their bed looking very very real um, and the relative simply saying either telepathically or verbally, uh, it's going to be okay.
5: That sounds like a very um, pure, good vision. It seems like recognition that consciousness does continue. And I know that's true from loved ones that I care most about who've definitely communicated with me. So this may be shocking. Obviously, seeing someone who you know is dead and then there they are alive can really blow your your mind um it would if it happened to me but the important thing is to recognize this is a gift this experience is a true message um it's one i I say that because it's based in love you can feel the love Mm -hmm. you can feel the reassurance uh so that's the key is just checking how are you feeling about it what where is this message coming from what's the intention there and then give yourself time to incorporate that, because that is shocking when someone's passed on, and then you see them just plain as day. There they are, and so also um, reassure yourself that what you experience is real. You know, like, honor your subjective experience. Really do, because it's important to to know. And that's what's so important about your show. I'm so glad you're doing it for all these years.
3: Oh, giving thank people you, people that
5: confidence too. No matter what their weird experience
0: was, um, take a different look at it and hold it in a kind of a sacred space. Hopefully, you know if I could if I could get one message out in the last thirty five years of broadcast uh, with all the things we talk about, uh, it's just that simple phrase: uh, "It's going to be okay." Yeah,
5: that is so important, and I think we know it when we just recognize. But we're okay right now everything's fine no matter what the headlines are the crazy news of today
0: <laughs> we're going to be okay yeah uh, have uh, you ever had anybody this is a personal experience of mine report something weird happening when they watch a tv program very briefly years ago i was a huge fan of tom snyder of uh, the late night talk show host And um, for better or for worse, if I were to draw a major influence on me, on how I approach the show, it would be probably Tom Snyder. And Cynthia, I remember at least two occasions watching that show, and the camera shifts to Tom's guest, and it appears as if the guest is shape-shifting or almost reassembling in some fashion. And the first time it happened, it was so brief, I just, I bolted totally full on, saying, what in the heck? Uh, And uh, maybe several months later, with a different guest, it happened again. And I've always wondered that if, if anybody else had ever watched a, you know, was it a simply a malfunction of my color TV? Was there something that happened with the broadcast signal um, right at that instant when the camera had shifted to, you know, the guest, was it something happening in Tom Snyder's studio? Uh, or was it actually that I was seeing a different, assemblage of that person
5: wow that's a good question and i I haven't seen that myself watching tv shows but i've heard people mentioning something similar so i don't think you're the only one and this is such a good forum to raise the question so hopefully you're going to hear back from people saying i saw that too (laughs) but i personally so far haven't seen anything quite like that but i have seen things change out of the corner of my eye, like if I'm, and it could be in real life looking at a person and feeling almost like someone's reassembling or shape-shifting, and I definitely have seen that real time, in real life. Mm-hmm. So if I can see that in real life, why not see it on TV, you mm-hmm. know? So it seems like totally possible to me.
0: Jim, we've got a couple of minutes left. Do you want to just share with Cynthia something of... Oh, uh, well,
1: yeah, I have my own Mandela effect story, and uh, I, I'll have to make it brief, but uh, it involves an episode of uh, Stargate SG-1 that uh, uh, played out one way, and I it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, and I went back year, many years later recently to try and find that episode, and uh, I... I could. I found the episode, but the dialogue and the the scene did not play out the way I remembered it, right. and uh, very very strange.
5: Gosh, that is. It, it, I know that feeling. Went, and I've seen something like I've watched a movie and then watched it even like a couple months later, and it's completely different. And there's no way I could have made that mm-hmm. up or imagined it. Sure. It's like what the heck. That, so, so what changed in that scene, just in case just <laughs> well,
3: are wondering? oddly so. enough,
1: it's a fishing story. And, uh, a, long, <laughs> a long-running joke on the series was the main character had a cabin with a pond that did not have any fish in it where he would go fishing. And so two of them went fishing there for a weekend, and when they returned, another character asked them, oh, What were you doing? And, oh, we were fishing. And so the response is, Oh, you fishing? Did you catch anything? And the the character that had accompanied him out there indignantly said, "Of course not. We were fishing,
5: right?" And there's no way you could make that up. There's no way. And it, was, it was it was
1: just. I was on the I was on the floor laughing when I heard that. Right. It was just the funniest thing.
3: Funny. <laughs> wow.
1: And if, if anybody can prove me wrong about this, I, because I know they recut and re-edit episodes over time. Say the show uh, again. Stargate SG-1 with uh, Richard Dean Anderson and uh, and his, his compatriots. Okay. I won't feel bad if somebody proves me wrong. But it's just the, the way I remember it and what I was able to find out later did not match up at all. Well, thank you
5: for sharing that. I think this is the important thing is to come forward and not worry if maybe you're wrong. um, Because we're having conferences now. We did the first International Mandela Effect conference in Idaho in November 2019. And that gives us a community where, um, like, I was trying to present a talk and I couldn't find the research for it. But I was able to tell the audience, you know, I couldn't find the research that showed one generation of um, this organism could mutate. In one life cycle to suddenly be able to eat this nutrient agar that it couldn't mm-hmm. digest before. Because so the research is missing, can't find it. Everybody understands. So everybody everybody in the Mandela Effect community understands. So even, and there are things like flip-flops. So you might feel like, I can't find it. And then we might suddenly discover, oh, it's back. And you can say, I swear, Cynthia, I checked everything. It wasn't in there. That Stargate episode was missing, but now it's there. That can totally happen, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Cynthia, thank you Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. And uh, it's great to touch base with you. I'm going to look forward to hanging out with you in Laughlin, Nevada this November. And between now and then, safe journeys. And thank you again for your contributions. Thank you
5: so much.
0: It's been a pleasure. Cynthia Sue Larson. A, a good portal is realityshifters.com, and that will help you connect with other things that she's doing. She's also the radio show host of Dream Visions, um, excuse me, Living the Quantum Dream, on Dream Vision Seven Radio. You'll find more information about that at realityshifters.com. You'll also find Cynthia Larson on Facebook. Uh, Jim Shorty, thank you so much for being here. Great fun. And uh, we we survived. We had a little we, bit of we made an it. obstacle in live radio, but we got through that, and we ended it on a really good note with Cynthia
1: here. So. We did. And uh, I'll be off next week, so have fun, and I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for the
0: reminder here. Uh, stay tuned for Beta Radio. They are outside that wooden door, and uh, in a matter of moments, you're going to be, be hearing from them. I'm Scott Colborne. Thanks again to Cynthia Sue Larson, to Preston Dennett, to uh, Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, all you folks out there that have donated to this wonderful KZUM radio experience. You can still do so at kzum.org. Until next week, walk and view.